Hello and welcome to Learning to Fly, the Science for the Anthropocene podcast brought to you from the Lancaster Environment Centre of Lancaster University. I'm David Tyfield and I'm the Professor of Sustainable Transitions and Political Economy at LEC. And thanks very much for joining us again for what I think is episode 14. Today we're discussing extremely important issues for Science for the Anthropocene. A number of years ago, I think it was 2018, the world was suddenly rocked by exposure to the extent of plastic pollution in the world. But the, the, uh, the horrible pictures of uh, marine wildlife battling with plastic is of course only just the beginning of those problems. In fact, plastics and the making of them bring with them all kinds of challenges of pollution and environmental injustice. And we're gonna be discussing these issues today with uh, someone who is an expert in these issues, Professor Alice Ma from Glasgow University. Alice has moved to Glasgow quite recently as the Professor of Urban and Environmental Studies. Previously, she was Professor of Sociology at Warwick. And uh, a few years ago now, uh, she completed a five-year European Research Council-funded grant called Toxic Expertise, Environmental Justice and the Global Petrochemical Industry. So her research uh, and her teaching focuses on toxic pollution, environmental justice, just and sustainable transformations, and anti-colonial ecological alternatives and futures, all issues close to the heart of a science for the Anthropocene. Alice is also the author of uh, many books, including the very recently published Petrochemical Planet, uh, Multiscalar Battles of Industrial Transformation with Duke Press, and uh, many others. She's a prolific author of uh, books and uh, award-winning articles, uh, including uh, awards from the British Sociological Association, the Philip Leverhulme Prize, and the Sage Prize for Innovation and Excellence. Alice, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm delighted also to be having you uh, here in the room with me uh, chatting about these really important subjects. Uh, thanks very much for, for sparing the time. Let's go straight into the discussion then. And uh, you may have noticed that we have a standardised opening to this podcast, which is to ask you this question. Is your science, which I assume in your case is probably sociology, is your science fit for purpose in the 21st century? I think my answer to this question is that is both yes and no. Uh, I, th I think uh, one thing I think is really important to emphasize is that social sciences and sociology in particular are crucial uh, for understanding, examining, and addressing ecological issues in the 21st century, particularly because climate action has to you know come from people, from understanding social relations, inequalities, and power. Uh, sociology also is highly skeptical of uh, a lot of the dominant assumptions in today's society, like uh, the, the idea that everything needs to be linked to economic growth. Uh, the idea is actually the foundations of, of science as well, science and technology as being able to solve the problems. And so I, I believe that sociology is an essential perspective. Um, but at the same time, I would say sociology and social sciences more broadly are based on dualisms between, you know, culture and nature, society and and environment. And actually it's, uh, you know, for a long time seen those as separate. And increasingly, 
In more recent years, there's been more recognition within the mainstream discipline of that interconnection between and interdependence. Uh, but I think there's a lot of work yet to be done. Okay, great. Well, let's do some of that work today, exploring your fantastic work. So let's go straight into that then, Alice. A less daunting uh, question. Just tell the listeners a little bit about um, how it was that you came biographically to be interested in the petrochemical industry? Uh, well, that, that, that's a, a challenging question, actually, right. as well, because <laughs> well, uh, it doesn't come with a short answer. Right. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I guess my first introduction to, to the petrochemical industry was through doing research on port cities and seeing uh, the close proximity of petrochemical industries, live petrochemical um, plants with huge amounts of pollution uh, near near there. Uh, and having had a long-standing kind of interest in the impacts of uh, basically industrial change and transformation in communities, so I, I, my my route was really through an interest in deindustrialization and the uh, the way that people live through that. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you want anything more biographically. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, that, that's really interesting. Alice, um, I mean, I can imagine how if you are looking at ports and uh, deindustrialization, then you're confronted by these um, megalopolises of, of petrochemical uh, facilities. But I'm still quite intrigued uh, about how you came to it, because as you write in your work, it's quite a neglected sector in some ways. It's an, it's an unusual thing to end up focusing on. Um, so... Instead of the, just the, the personal, may, maybe you could tell us, we'll, we'll get there in a second, but just maybe some, some initial headlines on uh, some of the issues that drew you into looking at petrochemicals in, in terms of these questions of power and pollution and justice. Was that immediately obvious to you? Were they also part of uh, what drew you into look at this, this particular sector? I mean, my starting point was really uh, seeing the... The kind of astonishing fact, actually, that that especially in the United States, where I was doing research and including in areas of deindustrialization, you see very heavily polluting and very toxic industries located right next to predominantly African American communities, communities of color, poor and working class uh, communities, uh, and. At the same time, there's a, a neglect on the part of local authorities and states and, and just sort of wider publics in, in terms of addressing the concentration of, of yeah, risky, dirty industries close to those pe people. And so it was really from a sense of almost kind of confusion as to how that could be the case. And, and, I, and I had, you know, researched that in to a certain extent in uh, Niagara Falls during earlier work on deindustrialization on, on, in relation to the chemical industry, the broader chemical industry. And I, I think what drew me to the petrochemical industry is that whereas I had looked at the chemical industry before as a kind of a declining um, industry within Niagara Falls as something that was sort of on the out, the petrochemical industry is actually thriving. And so the idea that there's still these vast plumes of, of toxicity in such close proximity uh, to communities and that the communities don't 
you know, aren't able to shift uh, th- those, you know, harms away away from them. And that there still are all these sort of science battles over whether it even is harmful to live next to them. I, I just found it so shocking. So that was really what drew me to, to think about it. It, it's not a kind of world that you want to live in where, where that can happen. Uh, fascinating. I mean, it's more than fascinating. It's um, obviously affecting, uh, personally affecting to, to see these, um, these worlds, as it were, uh, on, on, that, uh, that are there um, with uh, this particular industry um, and, and, and those, uh, those, all those problems and tensions. Um, what really struck me about um, your work on this and the relevance of it to the agenda of this podcast about a science of the Anthropocene uh, were a number of things. You know that um, obviously the, the the stark injustices that you've already uh, illuminated for us or, or, or touched on, but also that this is an, uh, an issue, uh, an industry that is, while neglected, also crucial. That it's therefore a major challenge for any kind of possible transition uh, that we might be looking at. Um, it's you know a hard to abate sector, as it's uh, officially called, uh, while being a major cause of environmental damage um, and injustice. It's also intimately interlinked across systems of modern life, which makes it something of a test case uh, about the complex challenges of of transformation, and indeed the challenges and the frustrations and the cooptations of attempts to do that as well. Um, and then finally, with that centrality and essentialness uh, of the, the industry or the products of the industry, um, comes lots of power. Uh, and so there's something of a t- another test case here in terms of working against or challenging some of these deeply entrenched but dispersed almost hydra-like power that we're talking about. So um, sometimes I think uh, when we're looking at questions of transition, it can feel daunting, but quite can do, as it were. But here, we're, we're, it, there's a concentration of the mind and the heart, as it were, uh, about the, the challenges that are involved in, in terms of, uh, as I say, the, these concentrations of, of power. So this feels to me that it, there are three sort of major agendas that we can talk about. Okay. Um, the first one is actually just illuminating um, the crucial challenges that this industry brings to us regarding socio-technical change and for the Anthropocene. So this would be a sort of a substantive discussion. What is the case, uh, you know, from illuminated by your research uh, regarding the current state of the impact of the petrochemical industry uh, on these challenges and uh, of its responses uh, to pressures on that front? The second agenda would be about illuminating more abstract, potentially political issues of how to work with those complex um, problems. So this is about uh, questions of frameworks and concepts, uh, about understanding and intervention, thinking about uh, complex systems and power relations and environmental justice and and what it means. Uh, And then thirdly uh, would be about illuminating how science, including in this case social science, um, maybe need to change um, how it is itself done or could be done differently, what its relations between science, uh, uh, society and politics in order to serve those de- demands upon it. So that would be a more sort of methodological set of questions, which I know you also have a lot of interesting stuff to say about. So let's try and uh, go through those three. And uh, the first of those, just to remind uh, you and the listeners, was this substantive discussion about 
the petrochemical industry. So could you give us a sort of a, a 101 introduction? What is the petrochemical industry? Um, what is its impact on global environmental challenges? Why is it important? Why do we need to know about this industry? Uh, the petrochemical industry, it's, it's a part of the broader uh, chemical industry. So it's, it's comprising probably about 90% actually of the chemical industry. And it's called a, the petrochemical industry because uh, it, it derives the chemicals from, well, pe petroleum effectively, oil, gas, and other carbon input. So also a small amount from sugar, some from coal as, as well. Uh, currently, 99% of, of uh, the industry comes from traditional fossil fuels. Uh, it's it's a very large industry, and, and it was originally created by the oil industry, effectively, as a, as a byproduct, a way of using byproducts or waste products from, from oil uh, in the early uh, 20th century. It was also developed separately through chemical processes in the chemical industry as, as a way of basically experimenting with uh, how to make plastics. It's a very, very large industry with many different kinds of players. So uh, the, the top um, kind of corporate players are what are known as vertically integrated uh, oil and gas companies. So it's, it's companies such as ExxonMobil uh, or Sinopec in China, uh, companies that do both the extraction side and uh, the petrochemical production side. And it makes sense for them because they, they can have all the in infrastructure interconnected and linked to supply chains as well. Uh, it's, it's very important because uh, it currently, uh, well, according to the industry, uh, is responsible for producing or being within 95% of manufactured goods. So it effectively underpins the infrastructure of everyday life. Of uh, A lot of things that pe people think about plastics as, you know, bottles or packaging, but it's also, in, you know, in sofas and windows and in cars and computers. It's, it's pretty much in everything and composite materials. Approximately 80% of, of their uh what they produce is plastics, but they also produce fertilizers, paints, so all, all kinds of materials. And yeah, it's intensely toxic uh, by nature because although some of the chemicals that they produce are less toxic than others, there's no getting around the production of basically the signature toxic chemicals of the industry, like benzene is one of the uh, classic ones. In, in recent debates about just transitions and about how to decarbonize, it's been classified as one of the top, as you said, hard to abate or difficult to decarbonize industries because of its of its tremendous lock-in in, in, in terms of reliance on fossil fuels. It's uh, the number one um, consumer of fossil fuels as an industry, but it's also the third largest emitter. And its growth projections are, are, are set to only increase production rather than uh, to reduce production based on growing plastics demand. And uh, it's actually its role in green technologies as well. Yeah. So we've got a, a massive industry that is everywhere but not really appreciated as such that creates um, terrible toxic products and byproducts. 
um, that is a, a, a massive contributor to um, to climate change. And as you say, with with sort of constant growth, um, still the expectation. But you also talk about the fact that at the moment it's at something of a crossroads or there's a double bind uh, for the petrochemical industry. Could you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I, I talk about it being at, at a crossroads effectively. Like, uh, I mean, certainly if you look historically, the industry has faced existential crises from the very beginning with, with uh, people questioning the toxic impacts of, of the products that they put on the market, the need for those products. Uh, but I, w- I would say that the last five to 10 years have put tremendous pressure on the industry to respond to uh, public pressures, governmental pressures, uh, to do something about sustainability, uh, to to uh, reduce its impact, reduce its emissions, uh, try to be part of the you know transition to net zero, which it was uh, you know very le- reluctant to do. But at the same time, they want to expand and to find the the, the new ways of of, of growing. Uh, so growth, at the same time as um, you know economic growth and and material growth, at, at, while being sustainable, is is sort of a contradiction in in terms, especially for an industry like this. I, I mean, the sense I took from um, reading your work was that there's a, a titanic. In this particular case, it's true in many industries, it's true, you could say, almost of human society generally. But in this particular case, the titanic uh, mutually incommensurability of the growth of the petrochemical industry and uh, the growth of its effects in terms of um, toxicity, climate change, that uh, this is sort of becoming an ever more titanic battle. And, and one of these will prevail over the other. Is, is that... Is that the sense that you have? I mean, did I take that away correctly? Yeah, I, I think there is an increasing battle to transform the industry. I think I think the the major challenge is that effectively the industry has the upper hand through being embedded so much in yeah you know, in everyday life, including in in what are classified as essential uh, goods. So no one would say, let's do away with medical equipment that is life-saving, that's made out of these materials. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I think it's not as straightforward as there's one side and then there's the other side. Uh, there there are um, helpful, beneficial petrochemical products that, that, you know, realistically we would want to keep in a society going forward. Uh, but at the same time, there are a number of harmful ones, and sometimes the beneficial ones are also harmful at the same time. So it's not a, a matter of just sort of extracting the ones that are helpful and those. And <laughs> um, yeah, so that that's what presents such a problem in terms of those different yeah battles. Another thing I was really interested in in, in reading your work was that. As you say, it's sort of ubiquitous, and, and maybe it's because, like the goldfish, it's the water that we swim in. It, it really struck me, well, how is it that we've neglected it for so long, right? And then, of course, in a sense, we haven't. I mean, you've said, and we'll get onto this again, I hope, in due course, that uh, a lot of envir- environmental justice campaigns about toxicity and pollution in particular do target the, the source of that pollution, which is often the petrochemical industry. But... The, the oil industry has an, an image as being uh, powerful and uh, problematic. Uh, 
and there's a politics of that, and there's also therefore a critical social science of that. But that's not the case for the petrochemical industry. I don't know if you have any thoughts, having studied it for so long. How is that the case? How has it been neglected? How have we, been, how have we missed this? Well, I should say that not everybody has missed it. <laughs> no, no, sure. I mean, obviously, there is a space in which people are paying more and more attention. But I think in general, I mean, like just thinking about, you know, the question you asked me earlier about how I got into it. When when I first heard of a petrochemical industry, I said, what, what's what's that? You know, and when you talk, when I tell people or I research that, that's the, the question. What What is that? So it, it's it lacks a kind of it has a certain kind of technical knowledge behind it that's based on quite advanced uh you know, chemistry, polymer science. Uh, so not every, I mean, it took me a while until I found out that kind of basic fact that 80% of petrochemicals go into plastics. That's more in the public domain now. Uh, but I, I think it, it it's, has the ability to hide within its complex uh, supply and, and uh, value chains. So oil and gas gets a lot of focus. Plastic products get a lot of focus how it all comes together to in the process to, to make those plastics from oil is, I think, poorly understood, partly because of the technical aspects of the process, partly because of the uneven geography of the location of, the, of those uh, production sites where uh, they are more, more close to communities which often have less ability to challenge that. And so it's kind of out of sight of, of many of... I, I guess people who might question that. Mm -hmm. So l let's move on to then the next big question, really, which is: so it is an industry that working with the things that it works with creates various toxic products and uh, has you know a, a negative impact on the environment. What is this industry actually doing to tackle its impact, or more more broadly, to be a, a positive actor uh, on global environmental challenges and? Feel free at this point to sort of uh, unleash your full critique of the industry, <laughs> if, if you wish, because uh, clearly th those two points are related. So the, the industry has, you know, a, a basically a very long history of responding to to attacks from or, or critiques, or crises as well. Uh, in an, uh, so from the very beginning, when there were uh, in the 1970s and 80s, when there were uh, criticisms by uh, environmental health labor movements uh, about the, the toxicity of, of the products, as people um, found out the science, they you know explicitly used the techniques of the tobacco industry to deny the science, to deny that there was any harm to health, to cover that up, to, to blatantly yeah lie to regulators to be able to continue uh, to manufacture those products. They have continued those campaigns to this day. They still uh, always point to uncertainty of science to say that the epidemiology, the, the study of the health effects at population level don't hold up, that it's because people smoke in these areas. With regard, they, they basically uh, have developed and refined their tools in order to respond to the different crises. So with regard to plastics pollution, like the waste crisis there, they, they responded uh, at first in, in a sense of sort of shock and alarm that their markets would be affected. But then 
quickly kind of got on board with uh, sustainability policies that, you know, emphasized recycling effectively and blamed consumers uh, for their lack of education and how to recycle uh, for, for the vast majority of the problem and tapped into these sort of narratives of common responsibility, like we're all in it together, it's, it's, it's everybody's responsibility and, and did, you know, some high-profile kind of beach cleanup kinds of, kind of acts. But I think where the, 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 the most problematic and worrying aspect of, of the industry's response to sustainability is that they are positioning themselves more and more, especially in relation to climate, as the saviors. So they have the knowledge, the skills, the expertise, uh, the materials to develop new green technologies. So experiments in green hydrogen, uh, yeah, circular economy uh, kinds of facilities, having the materials that go into electric vehicles, solar panels, wind turbines, having lightweight uh, kinds of products. Like it's an insulation in people's houses. Uh, they do life cycle analyses that say that actually plastics are better than alternatives such as paper or cloth or cotton for, for various reasons. So they're really, on the one hand, acknowledging that they have their part to play alongside everybody else and that they might have made mistakes in the past. But they're, they're a very strong narrative and the the narrative that's actually being bought by a lot of uh, regulators, policymakers, is that they are actually part of the solution. And I, I think you need a lot of technical expertise uh, and, you know, alternative uh, scientists, you know, who aren't necessarily, you know, working for the companies to be able to question what, what they're up to effectively. And, I mean, from your your understanding of the, the history of the industry from the, the present of the industry, having you know interacted with it a lot. My sense generally is that um, you doubt the bona fides, right, behind this, that on the surface of it, everything you've just said sounds, oh, that sounds quite good, doesn't it? I mean, clearly that's the point of, of that PR exercise is to say, yes, we're part of the solution. We're now on the good guy's side. Um, but uh, your position is, yes, but... The industry itself has shown itself not to be acting in good faith on these issues for a very long time, and there doesn't seem to be the evidence that it's actually fundamentally changed, in which case we at least need to hold those claims with a great deal of scepticism. Is, is that correct? Yeah, that, that, that's correct. Uh, I mean, I, I think there are, you know, it, I'm, I'm not to, it's not to say that there aren't good intentions and that there aren't, uh, you know, I, ideas that would could work in, in certain certain ways. So I think it's, it's a heterogeneous uh, field of, of uh, actors. I mean, I think the the big problem is is that they are so monopolistic. Actually, like there's such a a small number of of firms that have actually most of them have stayed on the top list of of top com- companies since the very foundation. So so they rely on effectively market domination and control. Uh, so that ha- has lent itself to collusive practices uh, that also related to the origins of the industry coming out of the Second World War and uh, war demand for new uh, kind of plastics and, and oil byproduct materials. 
so yeah I'd, <laughs> um, I mean all of these 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 cultural aspects that you're mentioning I mean they're, they're another good reason why it's been neglected as an industry which is it's actually sounds quite hard to access was that your experience yeah, I think it's partly about knowing which questions to ask right. uh, and, and getting... Which brings back to the technical yeah. complexity again that you mentioned, mm. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cer certainly it's it's difficult. A lot of people ask, ask me, well, if you're going to interview a you know, petrochemical executive, what are they going to say that's, you know, that, that's not a PR spin? But, but I think you, you can... Just the narratives that, that are told by industry about itself are quite revealing. Uh, because it does show a lot of the taken-for-granted assumptions, you know, that they have the capacity to find and fix their own faults, as they say. Um, and this sort of, yeah, uh, quite hubristic belief in, in their own uh, capacities. Uh, and and I, think, I think it's important to point out as well that, that you know, when you say, oh, be skeptical about you know the sustainability ambitions or claims. I don't. I don't think it's. I think one thing from looking at you know the many uh, petrochemical events and conferences and sort of observations I did uh, that I observed was that it's actually a little bit more dispassionate in a, in a way than 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 you know that in the sense that they would love it if they could do the sustainable practice right and it worked and it was good for business. It's really just the case that if it doesn't work out that way, if it's not in the interest of their profit and survival, then they will resort to tactics that that maximize that in and prioritize that above sustainability. So it's I think it's not the case that that they're not trying to do what they can within the limits on the sustainability side. But then that's a sort of a different question to whether they care about, you know, harming people with the toxicity of their their products so so it's sort of a each of the different crises that they're faced with that are interconnected are, have different solutions and and they tend to play them off each other as well so um, another key aspect I mean, so we've got toxicity we've got you know sustainability in terms of climate change um, we've also got you know the, the plastic waste issue and um, one phrase one buzzword I suppose that many of the listeners will have heard of is the circular economy, and I again I found it really interesting uh, from your work um, getting a different angle on that uh, that phrase that project of the circular economy, noticing that this industry is such a central player within it. Could you just tell us a little bit about you know just start, what is the circular economy and what are the criticisms that emerge of it uh, as a project once we start to understand uh, the, the actors within it from uh, in terms of the petrochemical industry? Well, the circular economy is a sustainable business model. Uh, it's the idea that we need to move beyond uh, a linear take-make-waste model, uh, which is the, the basis of um, I guess, traditions of capitalist extraction and growth and move towards one that's circular by, or asp aspirationally circular it, by uh, being more efficient in terms of use of products or use of energy and inputs. Uh, and ideally, the case that there is no waste at all, actually, that, that you kind of recycle everything and, and everything kind of, yeah, goes in this circle of inputs. Uh, so there's many R's of the, the circular economy, reduce, uh, uh, recycle, reuse, redesign, uh, um, 
yeah, I think there's even ones where there's 15 of them. So there's many different competing definitions. And uh, yeah, it's it's come into widespread use, I would say, since Ellen MacArthur, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, uh, you know, launched the, the Circular Economy Initiative in around 2011. And many companies started to sign up to the idea of a sustainable business model uh, that aspires t- towards zero waste or, or less waste. Uh, I don't think in itself, it's, I think it's a, it's a bad thing. I think the more radical versions of a circular economy are, are you know, a good, good aspiration to have less waste. Uh, there's a hierarchy where, where you know, re- reduction is, is the most important um, aspect of uh, a circular economy instead of recycling, which is the weakest aspect. Uh, but I think it lends itself uh, to the idea that you can kind of have your cake and eat it too effectively. So the idea that you can, that it actually doesn't matter how much you grow as long as it's circular. And then you can sort of fudge the idea of how circular it is. And I, and I think, yeah, just thinking about, I'm not a thermodynamics expert, but the idea that you can actually completely seal off uh, a system with no leakage or waste just doesn't seem to happen in, in, in reality. And so, yeah, in the time that I was researching the petrochemical industry, it, that was actually quite a fringe idea uh, that they were aware of, but didn't engage with a whole lot when I started the project around 2015. But in response to the marine plastics crisis, then they really started signing up to the circular economy in a big way with you know, many or pretty much all of the, the top players making some kind of commitment to circular economy initiatives. But they lobbied very strongly to water down the language of, of uh, like European Union uh, policies with regard to that uh, to say that, you know, it can't be zero waste. It's about minimizing waste and and to really put the emphasis on recycling as compared with, you know, reduction is pretty much out of the question. And then interpreting recycling in as a, basically a license to create new kinds of, of um, petrochemical processes. Most notoriously, I guess, but within the environmental activist community, the, this idea of chemical recycling, uh, which many... Uh, would say is actually not recycling; it's actually incineration. So it's it's breaking down petrochemicals to their uh, molecular structure and really often requiring uh, enormous scales of production and with tremendous toxic effects as well. Uh, to then be able to say, you know, we've it's impossible to recycle it mechanically these these bottles or these these um, inputs because of contamination or because of purity issues. So to make it equivalent to what is known as virgin um, uh, uh, petrochemicals, uh, like it would be if it was oil or gas, then they need to break it all the way down. So that is something that they proposed as part of uh, circular economy initiatives. And you can see how there, there's a very strong tension between what is being termed recycling, termed um, circular in terms of their accounting because they're not getting the input from virgin oil, <laughs> oil and gas, but but they're getting it from 
re- reused uh, plastics. Uh, but there's a tremendous tension with uh, the climate effects of that, of much larger facilities, all the build-out from that, and the toxicity involved with such enormous levels. Because the more com- contaminated, more problematic to recycle kinds of materials are things like PVC, which which are uh, more noxious. Mm-hmm. So, listening to you, obviously, reading the work gives a certain picture right it's always it's one of the reasons i enjoy these conversations you there's so much more that comes out in in actually in, in in hearing someone speak and one of the things that striking me very very clearly is that there are ways in which so my my personally my research tends to focus on the climate change question um and other questions of in quote sustainability there are ways in which that being the um understood as the exhausting the green agenda, as it were, serves as even potentially quite useful distraction that for for industries such as the petrochemical industry, um, which has deep, almost sort of constitutive problems because of the things that it's working with, with entirely different questions of the environment, uh, basically about pollution and toxicity, that if it can say that it's doing something good on waste and recycling and it can say it's doing something good on being uh, creating products for the green transition, then um, don't ask about the toxicity. It becomes the, the, uh, the, the unspoken and it doesn't need to be said. People will look past it because now it's a good citizen. Have I got that right? Is is that a key part of the challenge here? Yeah, that's that's precisely it. And and it's interesting because I started this research looking at toxic pollution and then kind of got interested in plastics and climate and, and how it all connects. And then I my conclusion by by the end was actually that's the crisis that they are not wanting to talk about. That's the one that they will be held liable for like if you if you can be fingerprinted as causing you know harm and and death uh, through your products and that's like the biggest liability uh, mm-hmm. um, like they're never going to hold their hands up on 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 that one they'll just keep denying that whereas with climate and with the waste crisis they'll kind of take a t- tiny bit of responsibility only in the sense of like oh yeah we're all in it together kind of responsibility i mean this is obviously very timely because uh, just this week, the week in which we're recording, there has been this uh, paper published across multiple medical journals demanding that from henceforth we don't ever talk about the climate issue in absence from the nature issue, um, which seems to me to be you know full square with what you're saying here, that sustainability can no longer be discussed in the absence of uh, poison, um, poison to the environment, poison to human uh, communities, uh, and especially uh, poison to communities, so-called fence line communities, which are uh, on the very boundaries uh, of these enormous uh, power plants. So what I take, I mean, this, this is very, very clarifying for me because so far in our discussion, um, you've been pretty critical, but, but also, you know, um, careful to, you know, qualify your statements and um, in the book um it, it's much clearer right um that um in, in writing your, your critique of this industry is sort of no holds barred i would say right um you you, you talk about the the um the relentless expansion of the petrochemical industry 
as being systemically linked to the violence of human and ecological plunder. You talk about uh, sort of its intrinsic, almost sort of genetic connection to um, issues of war, mentalities of war, um, its pathological avoidance of responsibility, its detestable corporate culture. I thought that was a, a particularly arresting one. So you know, here we have an agent in the world which is in 95% of our consumed goods. It's absolutely everywhere. We don't think about it. We don't really know about it. And yet it's connected to all these problematic things from you know, the, the slow violence of everyday exposure to toxins concentrated on particular vulnerable populations through to explosions in factories and infections of workers to uh, you know, even sort of outright violence, murder, repression of... Um, of trying to hold them to account. So the result of all of this, and I think it's just really important you know, to, to say all that, right? Because you found that, okay? That, that's what you, you found. And uh, this is, uh, you know, a, a really powerful uh, critique of a building block of, of our modern life. Where that leaves us, though, it feels to me, is sort of two, ha- two points. One is that you've exposed what seems to be, in many ways, a fairly intrinsically um, hostile actor regarding positive action on global global environmental challenges, and where that is both deeply entrenched and there's often murky corporate power and the two of those things sort of feed off each other. But then, on the other hand, there is the fact, the unfortunate fact, that this industry is deeply, intricately, centrally involved in the systems of modern life and in a sense it's unclean hands are all our hands in a sense so you know the question becomes you know you you say phrase it in terms of there being a wicked problem of a powerful dirty yet essential industry or you know another way i was thinking of it is you know the question is how do we extricate this bad agent which is built into the very fabric of the modern world and then, as a question for science, how can science and indeed social science on this industry uh, become part of the solution to this rather than just compounding the problem? So let's turn to science now, right? And not social science, but science per se. You've already touched on this a little bit, but maybe just briefly, tell us how science is implicated, centrally implicated, uh, in the current petrochemical industry. I, w- I would say that the... The science that's implicated is polymer science or the the science that goes into making uh, chemicals and the fact that that actually petrochemical industries and the the broader chemical industry were the seats of innovation of of those the development of those industries. Uh, so many of the top uh, scientists who d- discovered many of these these polymers uh, in the you know twenties and thirties, forties, uh, were employed not by universities, um, but w- by companies, and it's, st- it's still the case today. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think they they hold the keys <laughs> to to uh, the the technical solutions that will, you know, basically sca- be able to even safely scale themselves back if that's what we needed. Mm. So, in, in a way. We depend uh, not only on the industry and its systems, but also on their knowledge of what they do because of how to safely dispose of goods, of how to, 
yeah, they 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 have that knowledge, and so I mean it's implicated in insofar as I think there is a society wide belief in science and and I mean <laughs> there's many who you know obviously dispute science on on other grounds and and but the, this uh, a society wide belief that science and technology can save the planet effectively or or that that humans have control over science and, and so i think that's how it's implicated but at the same time you need to work with science in order to uh you know in its various aspects so so health sciences toxicity sciences uh, or uh, the the idea of, of that there are many scientists who actually break with you know the their the corporations or industries that employ them or, or, you know, work in other sectors that actually want to, you know, think about the social and political sides and, and side with citizens uh, or with other um, activists or p- residents in, in communities. So there are all there are all these different bodies of science, of course. Science isn't one thing. And many of those are crucial to the, the future holding of this industry to account. But I think you know the 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 first point which you just made is you know, summarized that no organic chemistry no petrochemical industry right <laughs> it, 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 that's pretty much right yeah? yeah um so let's turn to you know perhaps more positive things about you know science being part of the solution and from a social science perspective i think i understood your um your argument to be to be saying that at least the first thing that social science has to do is to um illuminate that corporate power, present it for us, not just the corporate power, but the the, the built-in nature, that intrinsic hostility uh, of the industry to some extent. So first of all, did I get that right? And secondly, could you unpack that a little bit? I mean, further illuminating this um, this first step of, you know, what really is the petrochemical industry? What do we need to understand about it? What does social science tell us which we wouldn't otherwise know, which is really important for us to be able to tackle the problems that it raises? Thank you. Actually, now that you put this to me, I, I think there are, isn't very much social science that is, is doing this. I guess maybe that's what is slightly different about this project. So a lot of a lot of social scientists who have looked at the petrochemical industry are really looking at it more so from you know a community perspective for example like how people experience the pollution or what they're struggle what they're struggling over uh, or perhaps about something around uh yeah how easy it is or difficult it is to decarbonize but this kind of multi-angled perspective that that I was trying to get through here and I think more social science uh can and sh- should do is is to understand how the industry works and operates in order to understand where its basically weaknesses are because i think there could be a common perception uh that maybe it's similar to oil and gas or maybe it's similar to other kinds of corporate entities or, or maybe if you do a certain kind of activism that that will definitely affect it in certain ways but to see how they are able to position themselves in relation to crisis, to co-op certain kinds of narratives, uh, to uh, undermine movements, to lobby regulators, to sort of put that whole picture together. 
but then also went to kind of get, get a greater sense of the patterns and, and the dynamic dynamics and the holes in their arguments, then you can then start to, it's basically looking at the, the object of, of the, the, if you think of it, as you said, as a sort of a, a hostile agent or, or, or something that needs to be changed, then you need to think, well, where are the points where you can put the pressure on where it will be really effective. And I, I think the, the problem is that the, that's always moving. And so where you might think that there's a lot of momentum and it does gain some pressure and there, it actually feels like there's, it's really putting this sort of existential threat to the industry, then something happens, a, a war and an, you know, a pandemic. You know, the last few years obviously have been quite challenging and lots of there's always uh, things that happen that you know br bring new uh, challenges uh, but the, the more you know I, I think about about the way it works the more then you can know and reflect on I guess the limitations of past struggles the strengths uh, and, and in order to not kind of give up and, and think about you know, here are the points um, where we could go f forward, and and I think the 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 most important one from what I've <laughs> seen is is really just challenging that that underlying uh, narrative that the that the industry actually is essential because I sort of started the <laughs> the book and the project like this dirty but essential industry, and then I, I keep chipping away at that essential aspect and thinking actually there are ways that you can dismantle and disarm large swathes of the industry. If you look more closely at what it produces, uh, who the, where the markets are, um, and, and how you might use policy, law, action, a whole combination of different ways of getting at these issues uh, to uh, create the mandate to, to make that happen, uh, for there uh, there to be the, the will and uh, yeah, to to you know reorient the the industry towards uh, what's if you, if you just thought of the industry as what's what could be how could it be beneficial if you thought of it as like I, I don't know if if it was in within one state in in a government you thought of it more like the hospitals or something if it was really an essential industry in that sense uh, as a an industry that is meant to do good and be helpful then there would be some parts that remain and other parts that are really um, radically um, scaled back and transformed. Again, really interesting. What, what I'm hearing here is that you see a, a key role for social science, critical social science, to offer something of a strategic analysis, basically, about this industry. And that it's somehow, and I, I agree with you here, um, there are activists that are going to be you know, lobbying against um, petrochemical industries. Probably, though, in order to maintain that momentum, they'll be focusing on specific issues in specific places. Mm -hmm. It's the prerogative, however, of a critical social scientist um, to take the, the difficult, challenging, time-consuming work of building up that systemic overview of, as you say, a, a dynamic industry as well. And only when you have that overview can you begin to really really begin to have um, strategic insight in, in what to do. Well, first of all, what is this agent as a whole, right? So don't let it show you one face while concealing the other, 
which is mm-hmm. the, 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 the constant possibility of plausible deniability, which is always there unless you see the whole. So you have to see the whole in order to see that there is always a, a face being hidden, as it were. But so that's the, the first thing that c- that can expose. But then also that can then begin to illuminate the the trick that's involved. You know, like the um, I, I don't know why the Wizard of Oz pops into my head here, but that what seems th- that it's not it, it's huge and powerful, but it's not monolithic. Um, that uh, it is still built up of cap- capillaries, uh, to use a sort of a social science kind of term. And with that will come various points of um, of vulnerability. And from there, we can even go to, as you were saying, we can begin to deconstruct its central narrative, its central defense mechanism, which is to say, yes, but in the end, you can't get rid of us because we're essential. And you either take all of us or you take none of us, is, is the, the, the implicit line underneath that. So in a sense, only a social science has the, the prerogative uh, to to build up that kind of picture, I suppose it could be done by NGOs, but it, it, it's just I imagine a, a much much harder thing for them to take on. Is that your experience? What I've just tried to summarise there. Well, I, I mean, I've, I think actually a lot of the NGOs do some fantastic work, especially mm-hmm. some of the the I think tanks um, break free from plastic and and. Uh, Quiet Earth and and you know I can name a whole mm-hmm. Greenpeace you know mm-hmm. there's a, there's a number of different organizations that do very produce quite sophisticated reports uh, and analysis. I think one of the challenges uh, Center for Environmental International Environmental Law also does amazing work, um, but I, I think um, one of the challenges is is, is that sometimes. There's a little bit of a script or an anticipated script when it comes to the activist and NGO sector, which is a little bit less nuanced, perhaps, than some social science could be. So, uh, you know, ban all single-use plastics, (laughs) get rid of fossil fuels. I mean, those are great goals, but... I think the other side of my research is about thinking about, well, how do you get there and what are the unintended consequences of of those transitions? You need to recognize that these transitions will be painful and and that it isn't the case that there are, you know, sort of problematic, bad, whatever you want to call it, corporations and then, you know, everybody else on the other side, there are so many people who rely on industries and, and, and all those material aspects as well to lead connected, healthy, happy lives. And, and so there's so much at stake in terms of how people are um, embedded within systems, which isn't about them being, you know, c- complicit as necessarily. It's really just about, yeah, how 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 disruptive it will be to, to change that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think a, a social science perspective looking at issues around um, just transition, around dilemmas, contradictions, incommensurability, the, the fact that, you know, you're not just because you might have those reports. So you say, like, great strategic socio- social scientific analysis, but then so what? Like, what if nobody reads it? So, mm-hmm. so it's really about, you know, mapping out uh, the difficult conversations that, and you know actions that need to to happen. 
So, I mean, we're moving nicely on to a really important set of issues, which is a term we've only mentioned, I think, at the very beginning, and we need to come to, I think, more clearly, is the whole agenda of environmental justice. Now, again, in your work, you, you tell very clearly the, um, the, the intimate story, in fact, about the petrochemical industry and its development with the emergence of environmental justice as a term um, and as a movement. So, I mean, it'd be interesting to hear a little bit about that. Tell us a little bit briefly, if you can, about this really interesting, intimate, interlinked history of the emergence of the very idea of environmental justice with the petrochemical industry. Well, I, I should have a, a caveat that there is... Uh a long environmental justice movement. Many scholars have pointed out that uh, although the term was coined uh, in the 1980s uh, in, in the United States as a kind of a coalition between anti-toxics struggles, largely against the uh, impacts of the growing uh, petrochemical industry and uh, the civil rights movement uh, in, in the United States, uh, th there have been struggles <laughs> for you know hundreds of years, really, about uh, the the fact that often uh, uh, highly damaging environmental hazards uh, are dumped on uh, or in close proximity uh, to disadvantaged communities, uh, and so the yeah the the environmental justice movement. Did very much take take off as a term and and, and concept uh, in in the in the U.S. in in the nineteen eighties in response uh, to you know several instances where uh, yeah poisonous substances like DDT or yeah toxic um, PCB uh, um, chemicals found in waterways and, and um, you know, community back backyards, uh, landfill sites that, that were like, basically dumped right next to uh, African-American communities, indigenous communities, uh, poor and working class communities. Uh, so there was a, you know, a, a movement among many people to point that out and to ask why that was the case. There was an, an investigation into the relationship between toxic waste siting and race, and that's been an ongoing debate. I mean, since since then, obviously, the, the term has uh, expanded and had a kind of a global resonance, and there have been many different kinds of issues that relate to environmental justice beyond distributional issues as well to take into account participation and and uh, other kinds of aspects. Uh, but yeah, there the petrochemical industry was was yeah very much uh, uh, one of the the key uh, industries in which in which. Uh, the environmental justice movement developed in response to that, and it continues to this day. So, if if you look around the world, there are thousands of sites. We did a um, a mapping of um, called the Global Petrochemical Map of seventy five of these sites, and basically wherever you look and find a major operator of a petrochemical industry, you can be assured to find that there will be some level of resistance and protest uh, of the people who live close by, maybe not necessarily using the terminology of environmental justice or not having those kinds of 
I guess, resources or, or energies to be able to uh, have a full-fledged movement because it's very, you know, challenging and costly and, and um, requires often an uphill battle. Uh, but yeah, is, is that... So, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, just now that uh, wherever there's a, a major petrochemical site, there seems to be some elements of resistance. But you've also mentioned previously that this is a very complex uh, science-based industry. And uh, that's also presumably the case in terms of the, 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 the proof of harm. Um, so in other words, what I'm saying here is that science plays an incredibly important role uh, in also holding it to account. And of course, that then raises in the context of environmental justice issues about uh, citizen science, participatory science. But you've also done some very interesting work exploring what is in fact not a very, um, not a straightforward relationship between environmental justice movements and science and citizen science even. I mean, for instance, you mentioned that environmental justice activists often have a dual, almost uh, contradictory uh, orientation towards science. On the one hand, uh, challenging methods and questions and um, scientific statements, especially if they come from vested corporate interests. But on the other hand, needing to make use of science, needing to create their own science uh, to, uh, to, to, to challenge it. Or another f- uh, quotation, excellent quotation from one of your books, you, you talk about a, a rare blend of expertise and political mobilization is needed to achieve environmental justice, making the role of experts critically important. Could you just, again, briefly, just a podcast on science. What is this difficult relationship between science and environmental justice? Yeah, this this takes me back to 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 where yeah the the my research started working in collaboration with a number of, of researchers. Environmental justice movements and activists have, from the beginning, worked in partnership often with scientists and experts on health, on toxicity, also with with uh, experts in law. And they are more or less forced in, in many ways. Uh, if if it's if it's a community that is you know fighting what they perceive to be unjust concentrations of of health hazards in their community as a result of pollution, then the burden is on them in most cases to be able to prove harm. So it's not it, the burden isn't on the corporations to prove that they haven't done the harm. And so, th- especially in the United States, uh, where where a lot of these uh, citizen science um, movements em- emerged um, alongside environmental justice, th- there were many um, yeah instances of doing yeah effectively their own uh, p- pollution monitoring uh, their own health monitoring like keeping health logs of, of uh, what when they get headaches or, or what their uh, illnesses are uh, and collating their yeah their their own monitoring of health their own kind of uh, participatory sort of surveys with with uh, it's it's also been known as uh, popular epidemiology, where you kind of go basically door to door and and do the long laborious work of tracking health symptoms in a population because there aren't the resources or the will to do the epidemiological studies funded by I guess independent e- experts or those that are funded by corporations or tend to be um, biased. 
so yeah, effectively, a lot of the the ways in which environmental justice um, claims have been made in in courts or in in disputes have had to rely on science. It often opens up to to criticism if it's collected by by citizens. So that's why they often partner with experts who you know are respected in their their fields. Uh, but it it's often quite challenging because even if they do uh, make those claims, then the resources that corporations have to bring in their own scientists um, and their own lawyers are much higher usually. And so it is often the case, at least from what I've observed, that unless it's actually quite an egregiously bad situation where there's it's very difficult to deny harm, then... Uh, it it doesn't go in favor of the community, so it's it's a, it's the the victories, the wins, and those are also kind of bitter wins often because it might be about getting a relocation, so leaving your home, or about a certain amount of financial compensation. Which you know how how can you compensate financially for loss of health and you know well being? It's uh, to put a price tag on it doesn't really. Um, yeah, the compensation is quite limited, but but those are where the the winds are. So that's how things are. Mm-hmm. Two last questions, then. So l- let's t- talk about how things could be, right? Uh, so first of all, then, what openings or insights have become av- available to you from your work? What what are you excited about in terms of how? Uh, these environmental justice-focused models of science or social science might be able to to help with with those situations. Um, how might it, you know, contribute to the uh, to the downsizing of, of uh, or the transformation of this industry? And if I can just append something to that, you know, clearly the the actual action here is the 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 imperative, right? It's the priority, but. Maybe also an aspect to that is also um, reconceptualization of some things as well. I'm always wary of hard and fast distinctions between action and thinking. Uh, I think the way we think is extremely important in terms of shaping what it is that we can do and what it is that we do do. And one of the, again, another of the prerogatives of social science is it has the possibility to explore, unearth, uh, undermine, transform concepts as well, effective concepts in social life. So whether it's from actual examples of, of what you've seen um, or, you know, p- potentially in, in some of these citizen uh, citizen science coalitions or, or, or partnerships, what can a science for the Anthropocene do to contribute uh, to these problems? And, and, and what does it look like if it can do those, can make those contributions? I think some of citizen science, it has traveled a lot. I mean, there are a number of uh, countries all around the world and and communities all around the world which use similar kind of tactics around, uh, you know, bucket brigades where where people collect, you know, in in a sort of standardized bucket um, air and and are able to uh, use that to, to, you know, demonstrate what the pollution is and health monitors, uh, so, so I think 
on, on a grassroots level, that work is really important and it's important to keep doing it and have faith in it. And, and there's also something called community-based participatory research where communities partner with scientists, social scientists uh, uh, to drive action. So I, th- I think that's all very Im- important. I think the question is around scale uh, because how, how you then generate that imperative to scale back. And where I see the greatest promise uh, and hope is in people, you know, it could be social scientists, but just people in general or governments, other actors, making the connections, like genuinely making the connections between the climate crisis, the, the plastic waste crisis, the overconsumption crisis, biodiversity loss, uh, and and poisons uh, and toxicity, seeing them as connected, and then seeing um, sort of the opposite of the industry, which is a sort of play the one crisis off the other, divide and rule type thing. Actually, see the cr- the crises and the response to them from an action point of view as interconnected, but also in the sense that you don't want to do something in one domain at the disservice of another. So you don't want to, you know do a, a major climate reduction that's going to have a devastating toxic impact on on people uh, so thinking about those and, and yeah uh, working across disciplines actually so working uh, like the legal perspective and the and the economic perspective and the sociological the political they all bring different angles uh, and to also I, I think a lot of education of Maybe it sounds patronizing, but of of scientists uh, to understand what social scientists offer, uh, why it's valuable instead of just adding it onto a grant <laughs> fund because it's supposed to be interdisciplinary. Like really, genuinely thinking, we need to think as ethical people, as as people who are part of um, you know the the world and are facing this crisis. You can't solve it with you know science alone. Uh, or you know probably <laughs> any kind of form of science, but you, the the more uh, collaboration, uh, the the better. Excellent, um, absolutely, completely agree with you there, Alice. Thank you so much. So let's get to the last question, which again is is standardised. And if we are going over the cliff, and we urgently need a new science for the Anthropocene, will we learn to fly? <laughs> I have three short answers to that. The first is intuitively, you know, the in the bones kind of answer to that, contrary to many of your other speakers, is probably not um, or even no. And especially because that is relying on this idea that sciences or social sciences can actually turn this around, that it's their job to turn this around, that, it, that you know, it, that it's something that's not already, you know, unfolding and beyond a tipping point. Secondly, though, from a sociological perspective, I think it's important to break down the we. So you might think, actually, if you think about historical experience, then probably some people will learn to fly, if you want to call it that, in the sense of surviving and adapting, but others won't. And that will be likely if we can continue on uh, the current path uh, or if history repeats uh, it's likely to be very unequal, unequal and and involve a lot of loss and damage and suffering. But I, I know you like <laughs> the, the optimism 
So I really There's thought. There's no demand for it. <laughs> I really thought about this yeah. hard, and and I really think you know if if there is a sense in which we could yeah uh, metaphorically learn to fly, I think it has to be at a, more of a spiritual domain. Uh, it's it's not to recognize it isn't you know about science or social science or um, you know that has its role but it's about living differently it's about being acting differently and it's about you know maybe learning to from other species from other ecosystems an, an act of humility effectively that science social science uh, human action human control is is uh, what got us here and it's not going to get us out <laughs> for what it's worth Alice I, I'm, I haven't asked myself this question on the podcast yet but uh, I completely agree with you with that so thank you for saying that wonderful Alice Mel this has been a, a fantastic discussion uh, thank you so much for joining me and thank you also for listening uh, please join us again next time and if you've enjoyed it please tell just one person uh, about this podcast thank you thank you